All right, turn with me to James chapter 2. Um, last time I gave this message, most controversial message I've ever given in 35 years, so I thought, why not do it again? <laughs> not backing down. Um, I believe the word of God is so important for us to hear on matters like this. The title is The Royal Law of Love. James has exhorted us at the end of chapter 1 that we should care for the needy, the, the widow, the orphan. And as we move into this next section, it seems like he's developing that idea out in the application of some partiality and favoritism that was being shown within maybe even the local congregation of the the saints he was writing to. Let's begin reading at verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Simple first point is... It's not compatible to have faith in Jesus Christ and then to treat people with contempt. It's not compatible. Don't hold these things together like that. Don't mix them together. It's not, it does not belong. The word partiality comes from a Greek word, prolimpsia, which is, is made up of two Greek words, which is one is face and the other is receive. I receive you on the basis of your face. I receive you on the basis. That's the word for partiality. Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't claim to be a Christian and then be a person that is going to have this gate that opens and shuts receiving people into your life based upon the way they look or their circumstances. The verb form of this word means to feel contempt for someone who is considered to be of no value. Pretty strong word here, isn't it? So don't, don't think of it just in the sense of, I'm partial to this. No, no, no. It's a lot deeper. It's a lot more ugly than that. It's, I do, I do not value this person. I don't think they hold value. Webster defines contempt as the act of despising, the act of viewing or considering and treating as mean, vile, and worthless. Disdain. Hatred of what is mean or deemed vile. So, wow. In the first part of that, you definitely don't want to be uh, in that side of it. You want to be on the side of of not liking what is deemed, right? You You want to be on the positive side of this. But what motivates people to walk in this partiality that James says, it's illogical, it's not compatible to hold them together? Well, quickly, pride. I think pride is at the root of so much of this partiality. I'm going to receive you based upon the way you look. I will put value on you because of my pride. My economic standing is a superior standing, and if you don't meet it, then I don't welcome you. Education, language, culture, ethnicity, geography, denomination. This has to be one of the most grieving things to the Spirit of God is that Bible-believing Christians, people who love Jesus, born of the Spirit of God, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me and the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and yet because we have a different name on some building we bought, we don't like each other, or we don't value each other. We don't respect. I don't have to worry about them and what they want because they're a different you know, group altogether. I only got to care about my own. That sectarianism Jesus rebuked um, when he was in ministry. Another thing that motivates partiality beyond pride is my desire for gain. When we judge or show partiality, it's usually because I'm trying to get something out of the deal. There's something, there's an angle I'm working. 
that if I, if I and we'll see this in just a moment in the text, so I'm, I'm, I'm out for gain. Maybe there's a political agenda. Closely connected in all of this is this idea that a valued relationship with other parties could be jeopardized. So people that are close to me, uh, that relationship could be jeopardized if I was to show kindness to that group that is deemed not having value. And if I do that, then that's going to impact my relationship with my friends, my family, maybe at work, culture, my denomination, the people I run with. And so because of that, then I'm going, I'm going to back off because I don't want to lose that. And so partiality enters in. Ephesians 6, 9 says, And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. And here it is. There's no partiality with him. God doesn't show partiality. If there's anybody in the universe that has a right to show partiality to one group or one situation over another, it would be God, and yet he does not do that. So do we elevate ourselves above God? I'm of greater value than he, and I have greater sensitivities than he, so therefore I can have that towards this person who's different than me. God forbid. He adds in verse 1 this little phrase, and it's not necessary to the text, the Lord of glory. Let's read verse 1 again without that phrase. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. That's a complete sentence. You don't need that little insert there. So the Lord of glory, what is the idea? Well, the idea is that showing partiality is so far below our glorious Lord that it's incompatible to think about holding these things together. By acting on class, one author says, by acting on class-based distinctions that God does not make and that Jesus did not make during his earthly ministry, the assembly of the church belies their professed faith. They do not act like God's people or followers of Christ. That is a true statement. So this is to walk in this kind of sin of not valuing other people for whatever the motivation and whatever the reason may be It is not consistent. Let's read verses two and four. For there should be, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, Get out of here. You stand there, get in the corner, sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality? Have you not judged and received them because of face among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You are corrupt, evil judges when you do that. I will benefit myself by showing partiality to this rich guy. This rich guy might have a job someday. This rich guy has some power in the community. That poor guy is never going to do anything for me. I like him, but... I would like a better job. And now you become a jaw, uh, you come one with the evil thoughts. I can manipulate this situation that I might get something from them that will help me in my current standing. And James just says, wow, that's evil. That is so wicked. Put yourself in that situation. If you saw that happen, what would you do? What would you do? Would you say something? I mean, I don't think the answer is blow up and, you know, start screaming and yelling. Or would you just say, you know what? No, actually, he can sit there. I'll give up my seat because, you know, I, I like it in the back anyway. 
Go ahead. You, you know, poor brother, you stay here. You know, rich visitor, you can stay here too. I will get up. I'm not going to let. And then you circle back around to that person and say, hey, that's not what we do. Now, listen, there are times where you make decisions about, you know, the order of a service, which is not connected to this. This is, this is setting about a value of a person's worth. And there is a difference. Who are we to show partiality? Jesus taught us the need to love our neighbor and to show kindness. As a matter of fact, he said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Anybody can love somebody that loves them. Hey, you're a great person. You're my favorite person. I've always liked you. Oh, okay, that's real hard. How about when it's your enemy? That's when Jesus says, oh, if you can do that, now we know that you truly are sons of the Father. In verses 5 through 7, we are exhorted um, to not despise what God redeems. So in that scenario of the poor guy getting shoved to the back and, and the rich guy getting this special seat, he says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You know, when Jesus was doing his ministry, it was the poor, it was the outcast, it was the leper, it was the prostitute, it was the demon-possessed, it was the blind. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't headquarters, it wasn't the Sadducees and Pharisees, although some did get saved, but they weren't the ones that were filling up the ranks of the body of Christ. It was the poor. He says, whom God is pulling into his kingdom, you're treating poorly. What are you thinking? That is a, a terrible thing to do, is despise what God redeems. And so there in verse 5, he says, make sure you listen. You better get this one right. Listen, don't do that. And then it's the poor. So you're, you're despising this man, but that's the very people that are coming into the kingdom. Do you want to be trampling that person whom God is loving, who God is esteeming, who God is gathering and pouring all of his goodness into? Do you really want to trample on that person? Verses 6 and 7, it shows the illogical actions of partiality. He says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? I mean, this guy treats you so poorly. This guy is taking advantage of you. He blasphemes the name of the Lord. And yet, because you think you can get something out of him, you're going to esteem him. And that's what partiality can do. It can so cloud the reality of spiritual truth and the way things are because of greed and desire for more that we start making just foolish decisions. He says, you're showing kindness to the wrong people. We move on to verse 8. It says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. This idea that, you know, I just need to love myself more. No, you don't. We love each other plenty. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, No man ever hated his own flesh. We love ourselves. Well, no, I, I, no, I just, I hate myself. No, the Bible says you don't. That we love ourselves. And so he says you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the royal law. You need to choose what's best for them like you would choose what's best for you. What do you want to happen in your house? What do you want to happen with your children? 
What do you want to happen <coughs> with your property? What do you want to happen with you know, your health? This is what you choose. This is what you desire. This is it. Love is choosing the highest good for another person. Don't, don't let re- love stay in the realm of my emotions. Okay? Love is a choice. And when you think about Jesus, he loved us and he put us first and he died on the cross. The royal law of love is established in the old covenant. Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love our neighbors. James has been discussing a specific economic discrimination that had made its way into the church. But the sin of economic discrimination is just one aspect of many acts of discrimination and uh, holding contempt, not valuing another person, another individual. And we have a history in our own country. And I want to talk about slavery a bit in our country and where we stand today with the division that we see. And I believe, you know, people seeking to divide us as individuals. And, and we look and we see the division that exists culturally in our country. And a lot of this has its, you know, the fruits of slavery still uh, bearing its negative impact upon our society. But for the church of Jesus Christ, we should not feel ill-equipped for the hour. Amen. Why would we feel like we don't know what to do? Because they're yelling and screaming? Well, then turn it off and open your Bibles, which we're doing right now. And let's hear what the Word of God has to say. One group of people trying to pit another group against another uh, is not the way to do it. I think this is like, should be our finest hour. This is not, you know, fast pitch. This is not curveball slider, you know, wipe out, you know, a pitch. This is T-ball for the Christian because we have been called to love one another and the spirit of God dwells in us. We ought to hit this one out of the park. It's sitting on the T. How do I deal with all this? You love people. We walk in the royal law of love and we don't allow any of this other stuff to come in and confuse us or get us out of, out of sorts. It, you know, the formal and legal oppression of black people, slavery, segregation, discrimination in our country has left a profound impact and the bitterness of those practices still reaping a harvest of corruption. <coughs> How can we make a difference in our angry, race-divided world? It's right here. We love each other. I choose the best for you, and you choose the best for me. In this room, we probably have some people of German descent and some people of Jewish descent. We probably have some people from Ukrainian descent and Russian descent. We have black people and we have white people. What are we to do with this? Are we going to start fighting out the battles of the world inside the church? No, we don't do that. But that's exactly what they're trying to place upon us today. And we need to stand against it. We love. We acknowledge, yeah, there's hurt, there's pain, there's wrong, there's things that have been taking place. But you know what? I'm not for that. And I am for you. And so I'm not going to stand by <laughs> and allow these things to be uh, stirred up in our hearts. Jesus took one, took one of the most controversial uh, racial issues of the day, 
the experience of the Jew and the Samaritan. And I read from Luke 10, 30, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest, Jewish, came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise a Levite, Jewish, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went and bandaged his wounds, <coughs> pouring on oil and wine, and sent him, set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So Jesus said, who do you think his neighbor was? Oh, it's the Samaritan. Well, wait a minute. The Samaritan's taking care of the Jew. And this was, this was not supposed to happen. They hated each other. And Jesus said, you want to talk about the royal law of love? You take care of your enemy. You take care of the person who's on your path that is in need. In the early church up in Antioch, Galatians 2, 11 through 13, you know, the Jews and Gentiles were coming together in this fellowship. They were sitting down and fellowshipping. They're eating meals together. Peter was enjoying a bacon, you know, cheeseburger with his Gentile buddies in their homes. And then we read this. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Oh, what's going to happen to my standing with these guys? What are they going to think of me? And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away, son of encouragement. He got caught up in that hypocrisy. You got to love Paul. And he saw it. He saw the discrimination that James was talking about. He saw the partiality. He says, you hypocrite, Peter. What are you, you were eating the cheeseburger yesterday with these guys. And now you're going to act all spiritual. And you too, Barnabas, don't go anywhere. I'm not done with you either. And he called them out in public because it was wrong. May we allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and see if there's any contempt, if there's any kind of uh, devaluing of another person or another group because of some distinction that doesn't look like ours. It should be abundantly clear that to respond to injustices, listen to this, it should be abundantly clear that responding to injustices of the past by harming and showing injustice to those today is a wrong way to solve the problem. Why is that confusing? You know, and I, I mean, again, I got people mad when I said it before. I'm going to say it again. It is never right to affirm injustice. It's always the wrong thing to do. I mean, to treat somebody poorly because you know, my forefathers treated your family poorly, it, that's righteous? That's not righteous. That's unrighteous. As a matter of fact, it may be even more unrighteous. Because with clear eyes, you can see injustice, and yet you're now going to walk into injustice, knowing all the hurt and the pain of it? Completely wrong. And so you're like, well, what right do you as a, a white male American have to say any of this? I'm not standing before you as a white male American. I'm standing before you to read the Word of God. And in the Word of God is authoritative, and I don't care about all the other philosophical systems that are out there. 
What about contemporary critical theory or CRT? All right, quick three points about this. Number one, they differ on the source of truth. Their truth is not from the word of God, it's from a person's oppressed experience. And they arrive at an understanding of experience and that's how they walk forward. Number two, they differ on where we find our identity. You and myself and believers do not find our identity in a demographic group. We find our identity as people that have been created in, help me, the image of God. This is, this is different. That's not what they're doing. And so while you may have a heart to really want to enter in and to have an impact and influence this, they have a corrupt system. Thirdly, they differ about a sovereign God. And this is maybe, well, I don't know. It's all important. But they believe that the God of the scriptures is the ultimate oppressor. Sovereign God is not loving God. Sovereign God, the scriptures, and the church are all systems of oppression, and therefore they should all be rejected. So this is a problem with embracing the philosophies of the world to try and solve a problem. We say the source of truth is the word of God. We say you've been created in the image of God. Who am I to think of you as anything less than something that is wonderfully and fearfully mated by creator God? It's not a subgroup. You are a direct creation. <clears throat> and we believe that God is good. That's why we can't use what the world is putting out there. That's why we use the royal law of love to solve this problem. So important for us to see this and to know this. Look at verses 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you're a sinner. You commit sin. Well, what kind of Sinner am I? They <clears throat> are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Say, well, I'm just a little racist. No, you're a, you're a complete lawbreaker. Okay, do you see that? You violate the whole thing. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So the idea is like, all right, you're okay with um, <clears throat> a little bit of murder, but not adultery? You feel good about yourself? No. If you, commit, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So we're guilty before the Lord. Verses 12 and 13. And this point is, you've been warned. We have been warned by the word of God. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Wow, how I treat people, James is saying. <clears throat> that poor man that got kicked out of his seat, where you showed contempt for him, and to show contempt, to reproach, your, uh, to reproach a poor person or somebody of some uh, uh, other group is to reproach your maker. What does that mean? To disapprove. When you disapprove of a man or woman because of their socioeconomic or whatever the issue is, and you say, well, I don't like that group of people as much. I don't like this. The Bible says you disapprove of God. And so we should be sobered by this. We've been warned that we will stand before God for how we treat people. I mean, it's obvious. 
I mean, Jesus said <coughs> we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is what? You love your neighbor. I mean, in everything, says everything of Christianity hangs on these two truths. We're going to be judged for how we treat. You may make excuses for your actions in your mind here and now for why you showed prejudice or why you treated this person or why you retaliated that way. But I can promise you those words that seem so well crafted now, when you're standing before the judge of all the earth, are going to feel like a mouthful of gravel trying to explain that you despised and that you hurt somebody because they were different, because you could get an edge, because you could get an advantage. We will be judged. And it says here that we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, I love this. You've been liberated to walk in love. So don't say, well, you know, I'm an old Southern boy, or my family grew up, or, you know, we've always, we're from this other country, and over in that part of the world, our nations were always warring, and it's just kind of the way it goes. You don't get to pull that card. Because a law of liberty has what? Liberated you from that stuff. You're not a, just a regular old man. You're not just a regular old woman. We are people that have been set free in the love and the liberty of God. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me to have a greater loyalty to God than any other group of people and the prejudices that they may hold. Right? I mean, does that make sense? And I hope that we can see this. And again, we can respond in this moment. Because the world does not have the answer. You're like, well, we got an election coming up. Please. Do you think that election is going to solve this problem? They may, they may push the ball down this way in your political agenda. And they may push the ball down that way in their political agenda. But I will give you assurance. They're not going to hit this one. They don't care about that one. As a matter of fact, they know the short-term benefit they can get by manipulating this whole scene and pitting people against each other. So it's up to us. This is our hour. This is our moment to stand up and to speak about it. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, I think I'm just going to take my chances in heaven with all this. Well, that's a bad idea. Because if you don't show mercy, don't expect to receive mercy. You don't want to help a brother or a sister, a person in need, because you don't value them? Then you have a warning here in Scripture that I think should sober us all up. The sinful treatment of a widow or an orphan who needs mercy puts the violators in a potentially merciless meeting with God. That's what the text is saying. I don't think any of us want to stand before God like that. Now, I want to close here a little bit differently than maybe I would normally close. I believe the church is fully capable of living out this royal law because the Spirit of God dwells within us. We have the light of the gospel. We have experienced love. I think we can do this without succumbing to the selfish hatred of the world. So how do we move forward as believers in a country where so much of this has been our history and even still at times goes on today in some places. We're not 
ignorant of the devices of the enemy. Nor are we thinking that this only happened to in the African slave trade. It happened to the Chinese in this country. It happened to, um, uh, to uh, the Irish. I mean, it happens to, it's happened throughout the world. Man's heart is corrupt, and they seek to do this. But how do we deal with this? Number one, I have no problem standing in front and calling out unrighteousness as unrighteousness. Acknowledge that it was sinful and it was wrong. Don't be involved in any other further acts of prejudice or racism or partiality. Make certain that while we acknowledge sins have been committed in the past, that we don't succumb to similar contempt for people today that maybe have a link back to that past. So if you're a, if you're a, you, you know, a person who's like, well, my people were oppressed or, you know, we've gone through these things. So therefore I'm going to hold contempt for those that look like that. Don't do that. You, you are required by God to walk in mercy. You are required to show the same kind of love. It's a, it's a, a street that flows two ways. It's wrong to show hatred or contempt toward a people for sins they did not personally commit. That's not, that's it. I mean, do you want to be held accountable for the sins of your subgroup, of your demographic group? Or do you, when you stand before Jesus, are you hoping that your connection with him, your repentance and that forgiveness is going to cover you? Oh, I think we're all hoping that. We're all hoping that my standing with God and my repentance and my humiliation before God for my sin is going to put me into right standing with the Lord. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. So I'm not going to hold somebody else in that same kind of light. That is not how we do it. That was a problem there in Galatia. That was a problem with the, the, the Samaritans and the Jews. And that's why it was addressed. You know, I believe really one of the things that the, the, the enemy is trying to do yeah, sure, he's a hater. He wants there to be anger, he wants there to be violence. But I believe that is like just the tip of what he wants to do. What I believe he wants to do in this moment with this subject is to discredit the word of God, God himself, and the church. And say that these are the oppressor groups and have nothing to do with the message they bring. Because the narrative that they will say is that the church and Christians did not speak up and they used the word of God to... Uh, uh, to cover their sin of enslaving, kidnapping. But yet the Bible, the New Testament, condemns kidnapping and slave trading. Read it. The Bible tells you this was a sinful thing. If the church would have read their Bible and obeyed their Bible, they could have stopped this maybe much sooner than it happened. But there were some that were getting advantage off of it. There were some that found an angle. And maybe it wasn't monetary, but you know what? Maybe the pastor was afraid to stand up on Sunday morning and say, this is wrong and sinful, and you should not be doing that because what's going to happen to that person? Oh, they and their tithe dollars might walk out the door. And so they had something to gain. Even if they weren't actively involved with it, there was this, this kickback or family or relationship and culture. But I believe what the enemy wants to do is to and I know you younger people, you're aware of this. You see this. You hear what people are saying, your friends and social media and the culture, and you can't trust Christianity because of this oppression, and it endorses slavery. Not true. It's not true. But, you know, the enemy doesn't care about truth. What he cares about is undermining the word of God. So 
in no way to minimize the, the, the evil of what happened. I want you to know historically of what your family did. I want you to know what born again brothers and sisters who rightly divided the word of truth did when this was going on. And it should serve as an example to us of what we do in this hour anytime we see somebody being mistreated. So not to minimize, but to give an accurate representation. If we go outside of our country, there's a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He was a British uh, lawmaker, and for 20 years he worked to end slavery. And you know what? He was successful. He stopped it in there, and it became the template for what was going to happen. But you know what a lot of people don't know about William Wilberforce? This guy was a Jesus freak. He loved Jesus. He was, he was so on fire for the Lord that the established religious uh, denominations in, in England, they didn't like him. He was friends with Finney and, and other abolitionists, men of God who saw this issue so clearly. Of course, Harriet Tubman, a name that we would all be familiar with, an abolitionist and a woman's right advocate, she guided more than 300 slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad. But when you read what people said about her is that she loved Jesus Christ. And she gave credit to the Lord for the success that she had in bringing so many. And there was a there was bounty on her. People wanted to have her rest. And she was led by the Lord. And she talked with the Lord. And she had faith in Jesus. Benjamin Rush, Rush was a doctor, a politician, and a socialist activist. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and he was bold and he spoke out against slavery in his day. He formed one of the first anti-slavery societies in America and he worked with black churches to improve their communities because he was a follower of Jesus Christ and he could see what was going on in the day. John Rankin, a pastor, an abolitionist, and an educator, um, he dedicated his life to ending slavery. He nearly died when a mob got so upset with him for his uh, you know, uh, rebuke of slavery. They tried to burn his house down. <coughs> and he was a, a, one of the main stops in the Underground Railroad. And so they wanted to burn that down. He preached against slavery and he emphasized the freedom of all men. Frederick Douglass was an abolitionist and a social reformer. And there's a lot to read on, on Frederick Douglass. But you know, he will say over and over again, it's because of my faith in Jesus Christ that I fight for the things that I do, that I understand the freedom and the liberation that is to all people. It, he was a follower of Christ. Edward Beecher, we're probably most familiar with his sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and her book that she wrote, but he was another pastor and president of a college, and he led abolitionist movements. He spoke against owning slaves as a sin against God. One of the first anti-slavery societies in America was formed by Christian pastors and churches, and they caused a cultural revolution that many would say ended up ending slavery, they were used. So what's the point here? It really wasn't that bad? No, I'm not saying that. The point is this, the idea that Christians did not stand up and speak up using the word of God, 
that has come from a loving God who cares for the oppressed is not true. And so you can trust the Bible and you don't have to walk in some kind of shame that the church is, uh, in the word of God, is not for people. It is absolutely for people. So I want to close with this one verse. It's Proverbs, well, two, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless. In cause of all who are appointed to die, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And don't forsake the gospel when you do it, as we talked about last week. You know, these are some amazing people. I I mean, William Wilberforce to me, I'm amazed at him and how God used him, not only in the way we just referred, but in others as well. God used him in a miraculous way to change culture and society, even the way animals were treated, by the way. It's just, when you read his biography, you're amazed. You're like, golly, one man used in so many different ways. But you know, he was... He was walking with the Lord. So he could hear the voice of the Lord. Are all of us going to be William Wilberforce's or Frederick Douglass's? No, we're not. But all of us know people. And all of us can be loving. And all of us can speak up. All of us could be like that illustration I gave of you're in the church of no, no, no. Don't tell this brother to get up and go. That's not going to happen. We're not going to push him to this side. We all can stand up and see a person that's being marginalized and, and being, you know, being reproached. And we can have the compassion if we're willing, like some that we talked about, to even use our homes. And then that might end up causing us something. But that's the, that's the thing we've got to watch out for is in the sin of partiality is that I am, I'm not going to allow the harm that may come to me to keep from speaking up and saying and doing the righteous thing. It is always the right time to speak out against injustice and point to the just one. So, I think this is our hour. This is our moment. You don't have to come up with a grand, elaborate plan. Just love people. Be kind. Be generous. Be be giving of yourself. And don't allow the world to silence you from what the Bible has to say or to make you feel like Christianity really is not all that it should be because that is a misrepresentation of what the scriptures actually have to say. God is love and we walk like our Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your generosity. Lord, (laughs) you spoke for us. We were the speechless We were those who were appointed to die. We were those that needed somebody to plead our cause for, and you did. You are our advocate. And having received such grace, and having received such mercy, Lord, how could we, for a second or a minute, watch somebody else suffer, to be hurt, to be crushed, to be taken advantage of. Lord, may we just get out of ourself. May we get out of our own little subgroups and realize we are part of the kingdom of God. We're not a part of a, a language. We're not a part of a 
culture. We're not citizens of a country. We are one blood. We are one family. We are your sons and daughters. And Lord, we want to we step into this hour. We want to step into this moment in our country where there is so much tension. We just want to smile. We want to show love. And we want to show kindness. And Lord, give us the courage to open our mouth and to speak up even when it may mean we have to endure some hardship. We may have to lose some friends. We may have to lose standing in a peer group because we, we speak up for the needy. Give us grace, we pray. Before we close, I want to give you a moment to respond. If there are things in your heart, maybe it's not race, maybe it's something totally different, but that sin of partiality and holding contempt for others is there. Let it go. Let it go. We've been warned. Love people. Ask God to fill you with the love for all people. The law of liberty has set you free. Don't let the law of man enslave you. We thank you, Lord. Help us to do better. Help us for those things where we are doing right to have steadfastness to continue on. And Lord, may we love each other. In the name of Jesus, amen.